0: Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the Backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Chapter 8 Acts of the Spotlight, Part 2 We've been tracing Christianity back in time looking for a starting point. What is Christianity in the first place? In chapter one of this podcast, I gave a premise that I think is accurate. It went something like this. Christianity is belief in the concept of Jesus that Paul puts forward in his letters. I've given reasons to believe this to be a fair statement, but this episode will illustrate the point in a way that takes us into the story, to demonstrate how true it is, and to see how fitting it is. You'll see what I mean. So we've gone through the Gospels and we've seen how allusions to Paul's Christ concept in these documents diminish as you go back in time. We've looked at the beliefs of early church fathers concerning the Eucharist and then gone back to the didache and seen how the concept totally disappears. Things like that, comparing documents, leaping from here to there. But in this book, Acts of the Apostles, we have a consecutive story that we can follow and look for the entry of this teaching that Paul calls... His gospel. I've just realised I could have run the survey of the book in reverse, maybe chapter by chapter or something, but it's hard to tell the story backwards. So as we go through the book, we're just going to keep this objective in mind, tracing Christianity back in time. On this journey, we've definitely arrived at Antioch. The people of this church in Antioch were known as Christians, and we can assume that what they believed was pretty much in keeping with the teaching we have in Paul's letters because Paul was their teacher, and Christians are people who believe everything that Paul says. This is what identifies a Christian. It's a way to identify Christian contributors to the New Testament, and it's a way to identify Christians in the year 2021. So, the next step is Jerusalem. I ended the last episode with a question about the people in Jerusalem who were followers of Jesus, his disciples and their community. Did they believe what was being taught in Antioch? Were they Christians? We're looking for good reasons to believe things. We're looking at the evidence in the documents. And there is good evidence in the documents to help us with an answer to this question. At this point, it's not on me to prove that these people in Jerusalem weren't Christians, because the idea that they were is not a natural starting point. We only have to look for reasons to believe this claim of the Church. Recognising that people who primarily believe in the teaching of Paul, like the writer of Acts, need the disciples of Jesus to validate Paul. People who believe in Paul, Christians, need to project Paul's teaching back beyond Antioch because his teaching is not primarily about himself. It's meant to have originated with Jesus. We're meant to believe that the disciples of Jesus and their community in Jerusalem were a congregation of good Christians, known as the Jerusalem Church, and they were surrounded by bad Jews. This is what the author of Acts, with his Christian spotlight, wants us to believe. We're moving that spotlight back to Jerusalem, and here's the starting point. Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, and their movement in Jerusalem was a community of Jews who were followers of Jesus. These facts are given lip service in Christian teaching, but they're not really taken in for what they are. While the Jerusalem movement was a variant of Judaism of the time, I would say in keeping with Jesus' teaching in the Synoptic Gospels, where it isn't anti-Semitic or otherwise written over by Gentile Christians, while the Jerusalem movement was a variant of Judaism of the time, like other Messianic movements or parties that had different ideas, there's no good reason to believe they departed from Judaism. To call the disciples of Jesus Christians, you have to get them from there to what was being taught in Antioch, which is the teaching we find in Paul's letters, very much a departure from Judaism. In chapter 3 of this podcast I interviewed Rabbi Philip Kaplan of the Great Synagogue in Sydney and asked him what makes a person a Jew. He said there are two things, being born a Jew, from a Jewish mother, or converting, which means accepting the theology and practice of Judaism. So it seems you can be a Jew by birth regardless of what you believe, but this is very different to being a Jew in regards to what you believe. Your belief system is Jewish if it falls within the scope of Judaism. Paul might have been a Jew by birth, but I'm pretty sure any rabbi would say that the teaching in his letters makes it very clear that he was no Jew in his theology and practice, at least not once he believed what he himself taught. This is not a variant of Jewish belief. It's another religion entirely. That's pretty clear. What's not so clear to a lot of people is that Jesus is not the one who called his followers to convert to a new religion. That was Paul. And I'm pretty sure Peter, James and John were not among Paul's disciples. The idea that they had such a dramatic change to their belief system is not substantiated by the teaching of their rabbi, Jesus, as we've seen. Okay, so is it fair to say that To have become Christians, Peter, James and John would have to have been among Paul's disciples. In keeping with Paul's own words in Galatians chapter 1, his gospel was new, revealed specially to him by the risen Christ, something that is supposed to have happened after his conversion. So to believe it, Peter, James and John would have to have converted after Paul's conversion. Hang on, that's a bit problematic. We'd better backdate that. So we have the vague idea in Christianity that Paul's teaching predated Paul and was present in the minds of the men who actually knew Jesus, particularly after he rose from the dead and they finally got it. They believed it, must have passed it on to Paul, even though Paul says clearly that that is not how it happened. This is a problem and it is our leprechaun. It's there, fairly obvious, not hard to see. And I'm sure it'll be a slippery one when I try talking to the next Christian about it. But it's a big one, a very big one, and it can't hide. All it can do is turn its head to one side and try to blend in. This leprechaun is extra magical because it incorporates two mutually exclusive propositions that somehow are meant to work together. All right. We're going to stop here for a while and have a good look. Get that spotlight and shine it on this thing until we find a way to make sense of it. Let's say we're trying to validate the Christian story. What if Jesus did fill his disciples in on the Christian message in Galilee, well before Paul came along, so they already believe the message that's going to be in Paul's letters when Paul visits them in Jerusalem, before he writes those letters? But Paul doesn't know that, so when he eventually does sit down to write those letters, he's going to get carried away with the idea that he's the special one who got the information from God first. Let's go there, into the mind of Paul. He's in a guest room somewhere in Asia Minor, writing the first of a number of letters that are going to make it into the New Testament, with no idea that Peter, James, John and co in Jerusalem already believe... What he thinks is groundbreaking stuff. If only he knew. This would be a surprise to him to know that whatever he writes, there are people in Jerusalem who already believe it. Because we know what he wrote to the Galatians. He thinks this is his baby. Okay, let's say he's in Ephesus, writing his letter to the Galatians by candlelight, frowning. In a house somewhere in downtown Ephesus, trying to concentrate with the noise of passers by, and he writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul is writing what would become known as chapter one of this letter. Looking at him writing here, if he had have known that this letter would have literally millions of commentaries written about it, he might have had a different look on his face. He might have been a little less insecure about how his gospel is being received, a little less worried about the competition. He's claiming exclusive rights to something, like when a reporter or journalist claims an exclusive. A reporter might make this claim and in doing so he's wanting people to know that he didn't get his story from other sources. He got it directly from the subject, in this case God, so he doesn't have to rely on information from anyone else. Okay, as Paul writes, we're going to pick up the words that are really saying something about his claims over the message he preaches. It can be helpful to take out what's in between to make things clear. You can check to see if I'm being fair in my representation of what's being said by looking at Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes, When God called me to preach among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem, Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. And then he gets up and slams the door. Twice. No, I just added that bit about door slamming. Definitely not scriptural. But the bit before it was, where he said, They added nothing to my message. Paul is emphasising the fact that he's had minimal contact with those esteemed men in Jerusalem. He's making a case here. What is he trying to impress upon his audience in Galatia? The answer to that is in his earlier statement, where he says, The gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The gospel I preached, he says. It's not something I got from anyone else. Okay, now let's go back to Jerusalem again, back to when Paul stayed with Peter for 15 days. Fifteen days... That's a fair while to visit someone. Although they do have a lot to talk about, Peter and Paul. Peter is surely going to get around to talking about Jesus and what he believes, at some stage. As Jews, they're probably washing their hands a lot, and they're off to the temple here and there. Peter goes preaching at Solomon's Colonnade, maybe has a few visitors back for tea and bickies. But they were going to breach the subject at some stage and if what Peter relays to Paul is essentially Christianity, if Peter finally says, "Okay, Paul, here it is, and he says things that are remarkably similar to what Paul was going to teach at Antioch, and then write down in his letters, what was Paul going on about there? In his future letter to the Galatians. If Peter already believed that stuff, wouldn't Paul have worked out that they were on the same page and that there was no need for all that contention. No good reason to make those claims that it was his gospel. If Peter was a Christian in Jerusalem, and Paul is not lying in his letter to the Galatians, you've got to ask the question, what did they talk about for 15 days? Did Paul constantly change the subject whenever Peter mentioned Jesus? Block his ears and make a lot of noise when Peter tried to explain things, or maybe he just went to his room and stayed there, so that all Peter could do was go to the door every now and again and say, Paul, when are you going to come out? And so he didn't get the chance to fill him in, and that's how Paul can honestly say in Galatians chapter 1 that he thought it was his gospel, that he didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it, it was his revelation, verse 11. I think Paul is telling the truth where he says, they added nothing to my message. If you go through Paul's letters looking for something, he passes on, of Jesus' teaching, things the disciples might have passed on to him, you will find virtually nothing, and I mean close enough to zero. This relationship between Paul and Peter, if it existed, And if it was congenial in those early days, might have deteriorated once Peter and the others got wind of what Paul was teaching. I've never heard a sermon on this, but don't we need to find a way to make it work? That's what sermons are for. They explain how things work so that we can believe this Christian message with confidence. The Christian story says that Peter essentially believed what Paul teaches in his letters. But what Paul teaches in his letters is gospel that he emphatically claims to have received by revelation, independently, and after his Damascus Road conversion experience. They added nothing to my message. So how would that sermon go? The one that explains how this was a revelation that he personally received using language that suggests so strongly that it was new, while at the same time we need to believe that it wasn't new, because Jesus has to have already taught it, So sure, it's believable if Paul independently received the same teaching as Peter and co because he had the same instructor in Jesus. But he's not aware that it's the same when he writes to the Galatians. He doesn't know that what he's teaching is what they've been teaching all along in Jerusalem. So he talks about it as his special message. But that would mean no contact. You have to have no contact to make sense of what Paul is saying about his special exclusive revelation. With contact, and reason to believe Paul knew what was being taught in Jerusalem, you have a problem. Paul's claims in Galatians and elsewhere become pretty strong evidence for the fact that Paul knew very well that what he was teaching was different to anything that came before it. Paul stresses in Galatians that he had contact, but it was minimal. You take that back to its time and place, and you have the rivalry of Paul's message and that of Jerusalem. That's how it makes sense. In that time and place, you have Paul saying, Yes, I did make contact with them. This was necessary. Without any contact, Paul looks a bit too much like he's starting his own religion. But this contact was minimal, he stresses. Yes, there's a relationship, but he wants his readers to know that he doesn't need them because... This is his gospel. If it was the same message as the one being taught in Jerusalem, he wouldn't be saying these things. It would not make sense for him to be saying these things if he was teaching the same thing they were teaching. Just like it makes no sense that Peter would have believed the teaching that was going to be in Paul's letters, and that during that 15-day visit they were talking Christian theology. how can this be reconciled so that Jerusalem and Antioch are not at odds with each other, with two opposing messages? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says people who receive the Spirit are those who believe what they heard, quote, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard, unquote. It seems quite clear that he's telling people they should believe what they heard from him, not from people who encourage law observance. His message about Jesus. Paul makes this quite clear in Galatians. So this message, that these people are meant to believe, did Paul receive it from Peter and the others at Jerusalem, or did it come to him by special revelation independently? I know, I'm still harping on about this, but it is critically important to Christianity. You can't have both, right? It's either one or the other. What are the options here? If Peter and the others believed it before Paul, that makes Paul a liar when he makes his exclusive claims. If they didn't believe it, so if what they believed was different, maybe in keeping with the fact that they were Jews who believed what Jesus taught, it means Christianity is not derived from the teaching of Jesus to his disciples. And then if Christianity is still true, if the disclosure of it all played out according to plan and Acts as our guide, there's an even harder question to answer. What was Jesus doing? If the synoptic gospels are a good representation of what Jesus taught his disciples, sending them out with this message, why did he come back maybe 20 years later and give Paul this special revelation exclusive that was different to anything he might have taught them? different to anything Paul might have received from them. Neither option works to validate Paul. Paul and his status as the one who speaks for Jesus is built on the assumption that he does. And without this assumption, we don't get past Paul's church at Antioch. And Christianity is its own heresy. The greatest deception. Again, I would like to hear from a learned Christian who can put forward a good argument for the Christian position. I think a lot of people out there would like to hear an explanation for this. Set things right if I'm misrepresenting this story, and send in a voice message, or ask a learned Christian teacher to do so. Anyone can submit a voice message for inclusion in this podcast series. If you can't access the option through the app you're listening on, go to anchor.fm forward slash shaking Christianity and click on the message button when you're ready with a concise outline of your argument. As I've said before, I promise I'll play fairly and not take advantage of my position. If Christianity does have good answers to this, my promise is that I'll do my best to show how good those answers are, and in that case those answers would remain as part of the podcast and would take it in another direction. I would even give a whole episode over to a Christian refutation if it was a good argument, and only comment on it in the following episode. But wherever that argument is questionable, I will of course question it. I think I've shown in chapter 2, the interview with the Reverend Tim Ravenhall, that I will represent my opponent well and only use his or her words in context, and in the interest of establishing a reasonable understanding of Christianity. I know there will be things i fail to consider, and I know Christian apologists can be remarkably good at finding ways around these problems. This requires an answer, because Christianity is supposed to make sense. You can't put this one down to some vague idea of faith, as if that explains why the assumption should remain hidden and unaddressed. This is absolutely essential to Christianity, and its connection to the man it's supposed to be all about. And that is the end of Acts of the Spotlight, Part 2. Coming up, Acts of the Spotlight, Part 3.